say you love this country, you say you really care, but America is dying. I don't see no love nowhere. You say you love this country and the freedoms that we share, but America is dying. I don't see no love nowhere. They say America is dying. They say America is dead, but there's a lot of people lying. And there's a lot left unsaid. Hey, everyone. And welcome to Around the Campfire with Kate and the Warmth of the Fire. The intro music is America is Dying, But It's Not Too Late by Dave Bray and Jeremy Harrell. So go on over to YouTube and listen to Dave Bray. He has some amazing patriotic music. You will not be disappointed. Tonight I'm going to talk about what type of survival groups you need within your circle the rules within the community group, and how to feed your community. The video you're about to watch is from Michael from Asymmetrical Preparedness. He has some sound, logical advice. So sit back and relax by the fire, and let's get started. Enjoy the video. Mutual assistance groups and you. Hey, everybody, this is Michael with Asymmetrical Preparedness, and that's what we're talking about today, mutual assistance groups, MAGs. I know you've heard the term probably thrown around, MAG. What does it stand for? Mutual Assistance Group. What is it? It is a group of people that you can rely on, that you can help out, and they can help you out. They have skills, certain skills, that you may not have, and you have some that they don't have. So why have a MAG, Mutual Assistance Group? Well, I'll tell you what. In a big event, SHTF, WROL, whatever you want to call it, you cannot do everything yourself. You cannot, not, you can't stand guard, defensive guard, watching out for bad guys or looters, marauders, whatever it may be, 24-7. You have to sleep because we're human, right? Yeah. So you have to sleep. So you need others to help you guard the area to secure it. What else? What about all the cooking? Gardening, raising animals, washing your clothes, bathing, eating, all these kind of things. Foraging, patrolling, also, that's part of defenses. I talk more about that kind of stuff over on Patreon. Link is in the description below. Uh, but first off, before I go any further, if you like the videos, please subscribe, hit the like button, share the videos, help with the algorithm. It doesn't necessarily like me that much, so any help would be appreciated. Um, and if you have a YouTube channel and you're watching this, email me at asymmetricalpreparedness at gmail.com and hook up a live stream with me if you want to do a live stream or anything else I can help you to grow your channel. I believe in spreading the community, growing the community, and all these things. Trying to build a bunch of assets instead of liabilities. That's what Mutual Assistance Group is. It's a bunch of assets you can surround yourself with to help you do the things in hard times. It may just be friends helping you out, like neighbors. We go over there and help him out. He comes over here and helps us out. He gives us fresh eggs. We get, we'll give him some vegetables and we get them. We go help him um, remove old raised beds, put in new ones, stuff like that. Building community. You're there for each other. Um, it's, it sucks being alone. There are very few people on this earth that can survive long term alone by themselves. S couple people, some people have those skill sets, but most people don't. So you need to surround yourself with like-minded, good people that will help you in times of need. How do you find these groups? You find them at shooting ranges. You find them at gun stores. You find them at um, sporting goods stores. You find them in the prepper section of, of grocery stores where you know bulk foods are. You find them at restaurant supply stores. You find them online. Um, you find them at prepper expos. You find them in the grocery store just talking to people randomly. Face-to-face -face communication, real world, not here on a screen. Um, and you can find some people here on a screen. But what's really important about Mutual Assistance Group is trust, right? We want to trust those around us. So vetting is very important. Only allow people in that you agree with morally and that are on the same page as you. Hard workers, dedicated, and have something to offer. I believe everybody has something to offer. Even if they're elderly and disabled, up here, they have a bunch of knowledge that maybe you don't. So don't discount them because they're old, or if they're elderly, or if they're disabled. They may be a very good asset. It doesn't matter if they're skinny, heavy, white, black, Christian, 
whatever. It doesn't matter. What matters is the skill sets they bring to the tables and the morals in their heart and soul. I guess the Christian part may matter. <laughs> that's, a, that's kind of a big one. So I didn't really mean to throw that in there. Um, for me, that would be important for people in my group, is that we share the love of Jesus Christ. But some people may not feel that way. So you can go your way. Whatever. Just as long as there are people that agree with you. But also, the other side of the story is, is if there's already an established mutual sense group and you're trying to join it, they're vetting you. But it goes both ways. Remember that. You have to vet them. You know, just like uh, other groups. You don't want to join some group that is really out there or wants to do harm to others or wants certain things that you don't agree with morally, that are illegal, immoral, stuff like that. You don't want that. You don't want to be around a bunch of people to say, oh, we're just going to go take from others. No. You want good people, honest people, caring, loving, all those kind of things. Um, so how do you talk to people to get them into a MAG, Mutual Assistance Group? A lot of it goes, I've talked about it in the past, in past videos, where you can just broach a subject with somebody, talk about, oh, the lockdowns, or COVID, or, um, you know, prices in the grocery store are rising, or what if something happened and we'd have another wave and we get locked down? Wouldn't it be nice to have a little bit extra food? Maybe encourage people from the gardening aspect, or raising chickens, or whatever it may be. I can't really tell you what to say to who individually, because your area is different, the people you're talking to are different. Um, just use this. This is the most powerful tool you have, your mind is the most powerful tool you have in preparedness and survival. Trust me. You can be physically fit, you can do all the things, but survival comes from here. It's a mindset. So have that mindset. But try to get people around you. You can have different like circles, like your inner circle, which is your family, friends, close people you've known for a long time, and then maybe, you know, rent neighbors, people you've known for a little bit longer. And then out here, um, you know, you've known for a long time, but not as long as your family and your, and your close friends. Then out here, you can have more people, like extend, extending your neighborhood. Um, you may have just general preparedness people um, that you interact with. You can have meetings, have training sessions, have individuals, get them involved. Have them give training about what their skill sets are, what knowledge they have. And then alternate it. So you get a wide variety of topics, and you can learn, you can increase your skill sets, so you may not be the master of it, but you can be the jack of all trades. And then, so everybody needs to have, you know, their mastery or a couple masteries, but then teach the whole group. Just like in the military, you don't, you know, if you're a machine gunner, you don't, you don't only know how to, how to operate that weapon system. You also know lots of other things. Um, and tactical tr um, combat casualty care, TCCC, you know that. You know lots of other things. It's... You don't want a single point failure. So you want a variety of skill sets. Medical is very good. Gardening is very good. Survival is very good. Military security type background, really good. Wide variety of people. Welding, fabricating, um, construction, um, home building, handyman, all those kind of skills. Um, animal husbandry, people that are good at that, vets. There, there's so many different skill sets that are vital that can be very, very advantageous to you and your group. So I encourage you guys, I guess, through this video to start forming groups if you're not already. I haven't talked about mags necessarily in a little while, but it's very, very important. Don't take that I haven't talked about it you know, every single day that it's not important. It's very important. And I encourage you guys to get out there, do the things, form groups, form relationships face-to-face. -face. Get to know more people. You've got to put yourself out there eventually. I mean, like me here on YouTube, I could just stay in my own little bubble and not do anything, not talk to anybody, and, you know, then I would just have to rely on what I have. Um, sometimes you got to go out on a limb. you got to go out and meet new people. That's how you get build friends, right? You get friends and build friendships. Um, that's just what you got to do sometimes. you got to put yourself out there. you got to talk to others. Um, please, though, don't approach it initially as any of these big events, like collapse or invasion or EMP or... Um, you know, uh, new world order, new world order, nothing like that. Keep it simple. Keep it to gardening. Keep it to food storage. Keep it to some basic skills. Maybe somebody you know wants to learn about canning. So while you're over there teaching them canning, you can talk about other things. Or maybe they know how to can and you don't. And they're not necessarily preppers, but they just know how to can. Go over there and learn from them. Or sewing, or knitting, or 
first aid or whatever the skill set may be. Maybe they have a garden, you can go help them in their garden. Maybe you have a garden, they come help you in, their, in your garden, and they can you can teach them how to do it. And while you're doing that, you can kind of broach these little preparedness concepts, these ideas that our ancestors always had root cellars full of food. People that lived through the Great Depression especially, they know what it's like. And all those people that think they're just going to go out and go hunt for big game, no. Think about the deer population. Research the deer population, what it was like after the Great Depression or during the Great Depression. Almost zero. Right now we have more deer, a better deer population I think our country's ever had, I think. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it is the healthiest we've ever had. The most deer, most elk, all that kind of stuff. But you can't rely on that. You can do small game hunting, trapping, snaring, stuff like that also. But this is all team. You need people, if people are hunting, then you need some people out foraging. Or maybe people can forage while they hunt and kind of patrol while they're doing that. So you can multitask. But you still need people. You still need people around you to do all the things. Because you can't do everything all the time. You can't be, you're not Superman. You gotta sleep, you gotta eat, you gotta rest, you gotta take some time to yourself. Um, time for morale is a big one. Also, playing board games, having fun, keeping the children occupied, babysitting, you know, those kind of things. There's so many different skills. Um, sanitation. Who's gonna be taking out all the trash? What are you gonna do with it? There's so many things to keep in mind. Um, forming a group and why you form a group. Work on bug out locations for the group. Maybe somebody has a cabin over here. Maybe somebody has a cabin over there. Maybe somebody owns property over here with nothing on it. Work that out and then establish communications. Establish SOPs, your standard operating procedures. What are you going to do if? What are you going to do when? Those are very important things that everybody needs to be on the same page with. Everybody needs to be able to communicate with each other via ham radio, FRS, GMRS, CB, cell phones, whatever. You need to have a variety of communication methods, a variety of bug out locations, bug out routes, all these other things, as well as forming your team. I know this is a big topic, but when you get together and you start talking as a group, more brain power, more brainstorming ideas out there thrown out there. So you'll get a lot more input and be a lot better off. Please subscribe, please hit the like button, please comment below. Check out my Patreon, link in the description. Lots of good videos there, tons of good videos, all security stuff and stuff that's not um, friendly to this platform and other of the, uh, you know, those type platforms are there. Um, dollar a month is well worth it. Please do the things, prep every day, Michael. and prep at a peace of mind out of the field. Talk about remember, prepping is living insurance. Community group. Let's talk about, do survival groups really need rules? Uh, the purpose of law is to protect the rights of property and protect other people's rights. Unfortunately, in this day and age, sometimes the cart's put before the horse and law is used to legally plunder the very things that it exists to protect. And I understand if the word law grates on you. A survival group is a cooperative effort to maintain civil society in a volatile environment. Civil society cannot exist independent of the rule of law. Groups must have rules and structure. As Locke pointed out, quote, where there is no law, there is no freedom, unquote. On the simplest of levels, rules are some of the very first things taught to children in school. And it makes me think of Roger, or excuse me, Robert Fulgham's all I really need to know I learned in kindergarten list. Let's hit some of those. Number one is share everything. Number two, play fair. Number three, do not hit people. Number four, put things back where you found them. Number five, clean up your own mess. Number six, do not take things that are not yours. Number seven, say you are sorry when you hurt somebody. Number eight, Wash your hands before you eat. Number nine, flush the toilet. The rule to not hit people and do not take their stuff may sound basic, but I imagine that every one of us knows people who never learned these lessons. And that's why a survival group needs rules. Rules remove the ambiguity from running a survival group. Let's hit some examples. If you hit somebody, then punishment X is going to be carried out by the person in role Y. 
If you steal stuff, then punishment A will be administered by person in role C. If you do not keep your commitments, then all of this is what is going to happen. Standard operating procedures or standing operating procedures, depending on whether you hail from military or business circles, respectively, or SOP. It's a set of detailed instructions governing complex routine actions in step-by-step format. SOP involves a whole lot more than just communications plans. It's become the de facto format for codifying law, order, and rules for survival groups. Both businesses and the military use SOP to achieve above-average results, even with below-average employees or soldiers. Imagine what you could do with a highly effective SOP and outstanding group of members. A small group can punch far above their weight class. With great SOP, there isn't a lot of wondering how things should be handled. The guy or gal responsible for that consults SOP, which explains both the spirit and the steps. The SOP is revised as the organization matures and grows. Let's hit some rules, laws, and order for survival groups. We need the rules. But what should those rules be? I'll list some examples of rules and areas that should be covered to get you started. However, which rules are right for your group naturally depends on composition, mission, location, education, politics, religion, and the list goes on. I wouldn't presume to dictate what many of those rules should be. It would be of little avail to the people that the laws are made by men of their own choice if the laws be so voluminous that they cannot be read. James Madison in the Federalist 62. While ignorance may not be an excuse, laws must be both understandable and limited, and limited enough to be understood in order to be effective. Do not get lost in the minutia when creating your SOP. Cover the big stuff that is life and death, but do not sweat the small stuff. I have yet to hear of a survivalist dying because their boots were not spit-shined or their BDUs are not, are not bloused just right. It's hit some rules for survival groups. Getting in and getting out. When, where, how, why, and under what circumstances new members are vetted and accepted. Also, how new or, exist, or existing members are rejected or ejected. What's involved in both processes must be spelled out. Do minimal group gear requirements need to be met? How about during an emergency? OPSEC and PERSEC. OPSEC, which is operational security, involves the security of the entire group. What needs to be encrypted? What methods does a group use to ensure OPSEC? Everyone makes mistakes. But how will you deal with those mistakes? How will you deal with members who willfully betray the group? These need to be spelled out. Physical security for survival groups is deadly serious business, and rules must reflect that. What happens when someone falls asleep on watch? What will happen when someone is late for picket duty? What about violations of light or noise discipline? What if you are the one out on picket duty and you just did an eight-hour shift and you want to go home and you want to eat some supper or you want to eat your breakfast and that person is 45 minutes late? What are the rules to handle that, to deal with that? What goes to vote and what does not go to vote? Tactical threats must be handled through the chain of command. There is not time for voting in committees and combat, but there are other times when there is a time to vote. The group needs to draw a clear distinction between the two. Again, it must be clear and written out. Not only does sanitation and hygiene affect morale, it affects the health and safety of the entire group. 
also consider that if someone gets cholera, giardia, or strep, the resources used to treat them will likely be irreplaceable at that point. It's a waste of resources when it could have been prevented with good hygiene practices. Austere medicine. Austere medicine means uh, making very, very difficult decisions. Do you use supplies that cannot be replaced to treat a patient who will die? An example is the terrible judgment exercised by physicians during Hurricane Katrina. Groups need to consider topics such as euthanasia beforehand. When is it okay under, under what circumstances? Or is it okay? This needs to be discussed amongst your group. It needs to be talked about. And the rules must be distinct. Now, how will you deal with theft? How about assault, domestic violence, murder, sex crimes? What if a minor is involved? Do you even know the people that are going to be in your community group? If you do, do you know if any of them are going to commit a crime? What is considered looting and what is considered scavenging? Under what circumstances? Do we loot? If we do not loot, what is the difference? What do we do with gear liberated from enemies or stripped from the dead? Rationing. Eating more than rationed when rationing is in effect is stealing at bar minimum. Dusty ros- duty roster issue, sorry. What will happen when group members are late or fail to show up at all for duties that do not directly compromise group security? Failures of leadership. How will the group address them? Where, how, and when will leaders be punished? And under what circumstances? Drinking and substance abuse. What is the group's tolerance for alcohol, tobacco, and drugs? And safety. How will the group address safety violations? Is it more serious if they harm someone than if they endanger them? How about accidental discharges? I had to terminate an employee for accidentally discharging his firearm in one of my places of business. It is not fun to deal with some of these issues, but they must be dealt with for the good of the group. All of these things need to be addressed within your group. And I am not talking about get your group and then sit down and discuss these issues. What I like to do is we already have a small community established. Say, for example, person A wants to become in our group. We have been talking with this person. We vetted this person. This person is probably going to be coming in our group. Everyone has to vote on this person. If one person says no, that person does not come in our group. But then we talk about safety and drinking and substance abuse, failures of leadership, duty roster issues, rationing, looting and scavenging, crime and punishment, austere medicine, on and on. Everything that I just talked about. Will the group enforce the laws or former laws of the land or require members to abide by them? And if so, which rules, which laws? Each group needs to make their own SOPs now before SHITF. You do not want to be coming up with the laws while you're trying to survive. Make your group unique to your small community. It should also be clear to every member what the SOPs are. This is something that will really help your group to run smoothly. Everything can be falling apart around you, but your group will be operating and functional. Know who your leaders are and know which leader, what, oh, I just got a brain cramp. Each leader will have their own specific areas that they are best in. And each leader should be teaching others to be better than they are. And then cross-train. SOP now. Civil society is predicated on the rule of law. 
An effective SOP removes ambiguity for decision-making. People believe in the apocalypse. So the apocalypse is not the place to be deciding your group values. It's the time to try to hold on to your humanity. If you wait too long to establish group values, your morals will be challenged by the ordeal at hand. And no, murder is not a good law. They must specify consequences. Well, how do you find like-minded people? That's a good question. It's not like there's a match.com for preparedness enthusiasts that would enable them to find the most perfect team members for their local surroundings. Despite the ease of connecting online these days, many people still find it hard to make meet like-minded souls. Other people with whom they're comfortable forming groups, teams, and networks, they're hard to find because everybody is hush-hush about who they are and what they do. So until that changes, here's a few easy ways to get out there and mingle. If the world does not crumble around us, who knows? These folks might even turn out to be great friends. But first, I have to provide you with a word of warning. There are more than a few prepper predators out there. And some of them are people who are collecting information on preparedness enthusiasts, their location and their supplies. They do this with the intention to rob them, or worse, should doomsday ever occur, they rape and kill you. If you have no ethics or soul, it's a cheap way to prep. There's also people who are just plain crazy. They're nuts. I've met plenty of them in my line of work, and I've met people who literally sell expensive memberships to their prepper group and require you to store your supplies with their leader. Do not do that. Then guess who ends up with all the stuff in a hoarding situation? This is no exaggeration. There are other folks who are planning to become warlords and use their members as personal foot soldiers. Be aware. Stick with your instincts and your gut feeling. Oh, but Kate, this person is so nice. Stick with your gut feeling. If something is off and feels off, it probably is off. There's even one guy I know who's planning to be the founding father of a reconstructed America. There are no founding fathers. We are all in this together. We all work together to make change. Treat your first steps with new preppers as a first date with a random person that you just picked up. They do not need to know everything about you. They do not need to know where you live, what kind of possessions you have, when you're going out of town, what your mother's maiden name is. I'd recommend that you focus on finding one trustworthy prepper friend rather than a whole group of random preppers. Build your mutual trust with this new friend a little bit at a time. Opsec, baby. If anything starts to feel like a cult, here's a newsflash. You're in a cult. Get out of it. And all that being said, here's some promised tips on finding your ideal preppers. Use your existing connections. Start with the easiest one. Casually query your current network of family, friends, and acquaintances, church brethren, co-workers, other associates about local survival enthusiasts. They're likely to know people that you do not. They should know whether their prepper acquaintances are serious, honest, and friendly. Ideally, you're looking for all three traits. But you may have to just settle for honest. And with any luck, your contact can even make the introduction between you two. But then again, do not give your personal information. Do not tell people where your caches are. If you have them buried, if you have them in a tree, if you have them on your property in a basement, people do not need to know what you have. Or you can take a class. The simple fact that you're willing to sign up for a survival class says many important things. 
first, being a class participant suggests that you're not total egomaniac. If you're willing to say, I do not know it all, please teach me something new, then it's likely your head is screwed on straight. Secondly, class taking proves to people that you're serious about your preparedness. Putting your money where your mouth is can be the ultimate proof of devotion to a prepper cause. And thirdly, your willingness to take a class with a group of strangers suggests that you're probably not a crazy loner. And of course, you may be fully crazy, but at least you're not a crazy loner. Most states have several survival schools within their borders, so take a local survivor class. Get to know your fellow students at the class as well as the school staff. They may be looking for someone just like you. What do you have to offer? Are you an individual who is like a MacGyver and is a jack-of-all-trades? Can do just about anything? Are you a medical personnel from anything from an EMT basic or a first responder all the way to a physician? Are you a cook? Can you be chief cook and bottle washer? Can you chop wood? Everybody has something to offer. Even if you do not think that you have something to offer, can you make coffee? Then you have something to offer. You can visit prepper events like survival expos and similar events bring prepper people out of the woodwork. There may be hundreds or even thousands of people at an event, and most of them tend to be local. You may be able to take a class at some expos that can afford you a better chance at, to converse with other people who think like you do. There may also be plenty of local survival-based businesses. These are the more serious people maybe worth getting to know. Just keep in mind that the prep show brings out plenty of gawkers and wannabes as well. These people may talk a big game, but they're not serious. If you are a serious prepper, you know the signs. If you are a serious person looking for a community, you know the signs. They're usually wasting the time that you have to meet serious prepper people at the event. The people who say, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that are not the same as those who say, I have already done this. Carefully connect with people. I mean, I joke about PrepperMatch.com, but it already exists in a very loose and rudimentary form. There's plenty of prepper groups who use Meetup, Facebook, or other social media websites to connect with others. Proceed with caution. Some groups are great people. Some are not. Leave and do not go back if people start pressing you for personal information, your list of supplies, or any other details that throw up a red flag. It's best if you're able to go to meetings as a guest or a visitor to see what they're all about before even joining. Be friendly but vague. Do not talk about yourself or your plans. I mean, it's okay to say, yes, I'm married, I have kids, blah, 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 but not, yes, I'm married, I have kids, I have five pantries, two basements, etc., full of food. Find out who you are dealing with. And it's important to build a group before there is a need. The more people and skill sets that a group has, the better chance of survival that you're going to have. You may not be able to pull a group together from just family and friends. And it's possible to find other members for your group. Just keep in mind that there are some crazy people out there. Go about finding new people for your group like you do new survival skills and supplies. Do your research. Make smart decisions. And back off if you feel threatened. Do not justify it. We're going to take a quick break for promotional purposes. Do you value yourself, your family, your friends? Want to know more about how to survive, thrive, and stay alive in these dynamic times? Listen to Around the Campfire with Kate, Thursday nights and Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Central, only on PSN TV. That's Around the Campfire with Kate. News that nobody in the MSM wants to report. Remember, train hard, train smart to survive, thrive, and stay alive. 
PSN Radio. Realism Radio for the masses. Talk Stream Live, Mobile Talk Radio. Imagine having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Talk Stream Live. Steven. Who said that? Me, down here. Ugh, what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. What are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. It's been a long time since we've had an adventure in the forest. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. You're right. I should get out. Yeah, the forest is not that far away. Hey, Mom, come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Here's a riddle for you. What do the California gold rush of the 1850s, secret societies, coded messages, mysterious 19th century flying machines, and an early 20th century outside artist named Charles A.A. Delshaw all have in common? The Secrets of Delshaw by Dennis Crenshaw and Pete Navarro. Go to www.secretsofdelshaw.com to learn more. Hey, Mom. Why is the sky blue? Why don't animals talk? Why do dogs have wet noses? Why is an 11 pronounced 1-T-1? Kids ask a lot of questions. Why do I have a belly button? But you don't have to know every answer. Why is the ocean salty? Because you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Why are there 50 states? There are thousands of children in foster care who don't need every question answered. Why is pizza round? They just need you. For more information on how you can adopt, go to AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Looks like you're turning into quite the little shopper. So you got your fresh produce and your fresh meat and your country fresh milk. Country fresh, Vern. Fresh from the country. Country, fresh, fresh, country. Catch my drift? That's why they call it country fresh. Now, it don't take no mental heavyweight to figure that out, does it, Vern? Know what I mean? Welcome back to Around the Campfire with Kate. Um, if you're just now tuning in, tonight I'm talking about survival groups, uh, rules within your community group, the survival groups you need within your circle, and how to feed your community. And we're getting ready to feed the community now. The United States of America is in a particularly precarious position when it comes to food production. Back in the Great Depression, Americans were able to put the hoe to the soil and garden their way back out of famine. At the time, 25% of Americans were producing food already, and another 25% had parents who did so were able to get viable gardens going. And guess what? They saved the nation. It appears that we did not learn our lesson because now fewer than 2% of Americans engage in any type of food preparation today. Much of our food is shipped in from other continents. Now, how's that going to work if the grid, banking, transportation, fossil fuels, the workforce, or even the Internet breaks down? Quite simply, it will not work. The gardeners will be in high demand. Their seeds will be in more demand, in my opinion, than regular food. So sustainably feeding a large group does not happen overnight. I hear it all the time. A neophyte prepper proudly explains how they have a seed bank that was purchased online and they have the tools to till under their lawn. The claim is they will turn into their whole lawn into a productive garden. And then you ask them, have you gardened before? No, but I have books. How hard could it be? We'll figure it out. Really? How hard could it be? Many people fail their first time at gardening because they do not know where to plant, how to plant, how to plant surface, how to plant deep, how to plant medium. How about a seasonal prospect? Outdoor gardening happens by growing season. We can grow amazing fruit 
all year round in Brazil with precious little effort once the trees are established. We're closer to the equator and there is abundant rain along the coast. The labor is cheap, too. But here in the United States, we are farther from the equator, so the growing season is so much shorter. Many crops are planted in the spring and grow through the summer. Then they're harvested and preserved in the fall. This harvest is stored for the rest of the year to get us through the tough times and any disastrous growing seasons in years to come. Thus the learning curve of the gardener or farmer also happens largely by growing, by each growing season or each year. And the experience builds slowly. Changes also take about a year to implement. Becoming a productive gardener takes years. And if you have not started yet, now is the time. Do your trial and error. Learn and grow. You are going to fail at some. Do not be discouraged. Try again. And when, when an emergency happens, you want to be continuing and expanding existing efforts. And you will be in trouble if just starting from scratch, if the poo-poo hits the fan. From the food, food production perspective, the worst time for an EMP would be late summer or early fall. It would be nine months or more before a scrap of food could be grown in the northern United States. Learn now. How about the laws of the harvest? You reap what you sow is a nugget of wisdom understood by anyone who has toiled in the earth. The amount of food produced is directly correlated to the sweat and toil put into it. In this case, it is literally And have you done a soil analysis for the seed choices for that soil? Well, Kate, how hard can that be? You just dig a hole and plant a seed. The soil should be analyzed and prepared as needed. Local universities typically have good prices, accurate analysis, and follow proper procedures. Do not count on being able to till your lawn under and find a thick layer of rich, loamy topsoil free of rocks. Simple, simply purchasing a vault of heirloom seeds is not enough. I am not saying do not buy heirloom seeds, but procuring heirloom seeds locally will help make sure they are varieties already acclimated to the local climate and soil composition. This will make them a lot more effective. The seeds that you are purchasing, where did they come from? There are places, your local co-op, your local uh, farm and home, your local 4-H, your local agriculture places. Go to them and find out where you can purchase local seeds. And then there's food storage. Why not go right into gardening and livestock? Because producing food takes time. Plus, you must live long enough and have the energy to make it happen. So how much is enough? Absolute minimum food storage for long-term survival is a year. I plan on more than two, and I know it's still not enough. Why so much, Kate? because it will be a year before we can grow more food. I know that the first year's harvest will not be sufficient. I also know that there will be a starving family and starving neighbors close by. Is the over two years of food I have stored enough? Absolutely not. It is going to take a lot of hard work and even harder decisions to survive, even with over two years of food storage. What it does do, it, give, it gives me some time to think and act 
I know that I have food. I am not going to starve. So with that out of the way, I can think. I do not want to react to my situation. I need to act to my situation. What to store? How about a diversified food storage? Which is the best foods? Do I dry pack, freeze dry, MREs? What do I do? Those are good questions. My family has been storing food for over 100 years. So we've learned a thing or two about the journey. The answer depends somewhat on your group makeup, the medical conditions, the climate, the plans, and other factors. For most groups who do regularly eat and rotate their long-term storage foods, a diversified model makes the most sense. What I mean by that, a diversified food storage model, is 90 days of shelf-stable foods that you normally eat for short-term storage. These should be rotated through. Then there's the dry-pack long-term food storage. I prefer to pack dry goods in number 10 cans with oxygen absorbers. They are labeled, dated, then packed six to a cardboard box with two plastic lids per box to preserve and keep bugs out of the food. I recommend the number 10 cans as they're both pest and rodent proof. Plastic buckets are not. I am not saying do not use plastic buckets if you do not have access to number 10 cans. I am just warning you, they are not rodent and insect proof. Shelf life for most dry raw foods packed in this manner is about 25 to 30 years. This rivals freeze-drying for storage life. Food storage should be kept in a cool, dark place and preferably at a constant temperature. I have had people ask me, well, where, where could I do that? Well, if you live in an area where you have a hill as a backyard, dig a hole in the hill. Get a galvanized trash can. Put your number 10 cans in that galvanized trash can. Put the lid on it and cover it up. Oh, that's a lot of work. You know, it is not a lot of work if your life depends on eating in a poop-hits-the-fan situation. Then there's the wet-packed long-term food storage. Wet-packaged foods should be pressure-canned. One of my grandfathers uh, was a military surgeon and public health official. He used essentially the same technique to sterilize medical instruments when an autoclave was not available. Food stored in this manner is to be microbiologically—I can't even talk. Food stored in this manner is to be microbiologically safe for an indefinite period of time. Safe as long as the container integrity is preserved and proper technique is observed in the canning process. The food may lose some color, taste, and texture. It'll lose some vitamins and nutritional value after 20 to 30 years, but the food is typically safe to eat. And I can rotate all food to preserve nutrition, taste, and texture. Let's hit freeze-dried food storage. Freeze-dried food storage is nice to have on hand. You do not have to use hot water to reconstitute it. But it will taste better with hot water. Trust me. Freeze-dried food uses less fuel, time, and spices to prepare when compared in dry packets. Also because it's lightweight, it's more desirable for travel. It is especially preferable if you are traveling on foot and in cold weather. My favorite freeze-dried food for long-range foot travel is the long-range patrol or cold weather ration. I typically choose like the Mountain House freeze-dried meals that are vacuum-packed in the cuboid shapes. These pack more densely than the ovoid-shaped Mountain House Pro Packs. 
and other freeze-dried meal, freeze meals. They are high in calorie with plenty of protein, fat, and carbs. And then if you want to store the MREs or the meals ready to eat, do not believe everything you hear about MREs stopping you up, giving you the squirts, and tasting terrible. I ate only MREs and other U.S. rations for a long period of time straight with absolutely no ill effects. Now, everybody's body is different. I understand that. And very few are affected with the the terrible tasting, the squirts, stopping you up, etc. MREs are nice to have when you do not have time to cook. When tactical considerations dictate a cold camp and short-term travel by vehicle. The storage life is, is highly temperature dependent. Every 10 degrees above 70 degrees Fahrenheit cuts the shelf life in half. The MREs use little water to prepare. And history shows that people will kill for them when they are hungry. Then there's the low moisture survival rations. Low moisture foods are important for storing in vehicles. Like in the southern states, a wet MRE entree will not last a summer in the cab of a pickup. The low moisture rations like survival bars used in lifeboats, millennial bars, or United States military GP, GP survival rations last far, far longer. And I've eaten them after 11 years of them sitting in my vehicle, knocking around in my truck. And I'm still here. And then there's the caches. Do not put all of your eggs in one basket. Cache some of your food storage. Put two number 10 cans of beans and a can of rice and a can with bouillon, soup, gravy base, salt, sugar, spices, uh, a little bit of hanger wire, the ferro rod stuffed in a PVC pipe and some cache spots. This will provide filler for a lot of meals. Use number 10 cans of Mountain House if you have the money. Why do you use caches? Because if your location is compromised, and some of these militants that I just talked about at the beginning of the show has taken over your location, you have another location to go to, or you know where there's a cache of food, you are not going to starve. Home food production to achieve a degree of self-reliance, food must be produced and preserved in a root cellar or using renewable energy. If you are living in an apartment or a townhome, start a vertical garden, a window box, a container garden. Now is the time to get on YouTube and learn how to do these things. Many communities and schools rent garden spots to members of the community. These programs provide a way to meet someone who you can mentor or they can mentor you in gardening. It's also a way to learn the skills that you and your group needs. Then there's gardening and orchards. Your group will need land, water, sun, topsoil, seeds, soil amendment, fertilizer tools, knowledge, experience, and specific supplies to grow food crops in a garden. No Water is an absolute deal breaker where land for a retreat is concerned. Water is the first thing to check when looking for land that goes triple out west. A tractor or a rototiller will help a great deal if you're in a large enough group with enough land. Human resources also factor heavily into the success. And I have yet to hear of a homestead with perfect soil. Where I choose to live, we have abundant water, which is hard to find in some places. We have alkaline soil that causes iron deficiency. No matter where your land is, there will be challenges to overcome. You'll also have to keep out pests and birds and varmints, including the human variety. 
I suggest reading the book Secret Garden of Survival by Rick Austin to learn how to grow gardens that do not look like gardens. It contains advice on things like Xerox landscaping and plants that can be planted together to discourage both pets and prying eyes. Again, that book is called Secret Garden of Survival by Rick Austin. Fruit trees are wonderful, but also take years to take root and mature. So plant them as soon as possible. They're worth the investment. Fruit trees can produce years of tasty fruit, jams, butters, juices, nectar, and they'll often produce well with precious little care. If you've ever hiked in the mountainous areas, I've, I've hiked in like Arizona's Superstition Mountains to revisit the Revis Ranch. Over 120 apple trees still remain nearly 100 years after Elisha Revis has died. Fruit trees can pay off for a long term. And then there's livestock. Most Americans are used to a diet that's high in meat and protein. Unless you live on a ranch, this will have to change. Most survivalists will have to learn to eat to live instead of live to eat. Visions of an apocalypse filled with bacon and booze is fanciful for most. Survival conditions often require serious adaptation. And many farms have a dairy cow or two, and they have chickens, geese, guinea. They'll produce needed eggs and dairy products. Rabbits or pigeons can keep even can keep even in more urban areas. Survivalists tend to want to think outside the box, and perhaps it's in our nature. But I would not get too exotic with your livestock. Stick with the tried and true breeds that locals know and understand. Livestock requires constant care, and you'll notice that farmers tend to have large families to provide the labor necessary to run a farm. Caring for livestock is more easily accomplished in a group, especially if you are not farming full-time. And then there's aquaponics. Aquaponics uses a combination of fish ponds and gardens to create a closed, self-sustaining ecosystem. This can produce vegetables, greens, and fish. It produces a great deal of food in a little space and has become very popular in the suburbs. Like I said, now is the time to YouTube your resources. YouTube aquaponics and see what you can learn. Then there's the scavenging, gathering, and hunting. Many survivalists plan on heading for the mountains to live off the land. There are places where this is possible. Yet if even a small percentage of the population has the same idea, big game levels will quickly fall to near extinction. What will persist in sparsely populated areas is edible plants. Edible forage and small game will feed mostly gatherer-hunter populations. I say hunter-gatherer or gather-hunter to illustrate the point. You could easily survive off of wild edibles even in densely populated areas, at least at the present. Keep in mind that human beings will quickly learn which plants are edible and scour the earth like a plague of locusts in these areas. Do toss the garden pets in the stew pot. Fish, trap, and hunt where it makes sense. But remember that the agricultural revolution yielded a 50-fold increase in standard of living over the gatherer-hunter lifestyle. So think, think before the poop hits the fan. Tilling your lawn under and planting seeds out of cans that come from 20 states away is not a viable food production strategy. You need to be gardening. Now, in conclusion... Diversified food storage is more effective than storing only one type. Low-moisture foods like Lifeboat and U.S. Military GP survival rations fare better in the fluctuating temperatures encountered in vehicles than foods with higher moisture content. And a combined strategy of both food storage and production is needed for a large group to survive 
a long-term situation. I hope you guys are learning something out of this. If not, go back. Go back and listen to this broadcast. I hope you learn something because we are going to need it. And this ends the show for me tonight. Thank you for sharing the campfire with me. If you are on YouTube or another platform listening and you enjoy the content of these shows, please be sure to hit the like and subscribe buttons. And remember, train hard and train smart to survive, thrive, and stay alive. This is Kate, signing off until next time. Say you love this country, say you really care, but America is dying. I don't see no love, no.